Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning to Lighthouse Bible Church. Reminder to everybody on Skype, we are recording, so I would ask that you make sure your microphone is on mute. And also, if you have a camera, uh, make sure that the video is also off, the red slash through the camera. All right, let's begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all your blessings. Most of all, Father, for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, for you providing him for us, God in the flesh. We thank you that he was willing and able and decided to go to the cross and die for our sins and was buried. And on the third day, he raised him from the dead. So that whoever simply believes in him, Jesus Christ as their savior, will never perish, but have eternal life. And you, at the moment they believe in your son, declare them to be righteous in your eyes forever. So, Father, this morning we would ask that as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and all that it has to say about your son, that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to concentrate and understand the message and, the, most importantly, the text of the passage that we'll be studying today, hearing today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Once again, I do want to remind anybody who's on Skype this morning that we are recording. And again, I would ask that you make sure that your microphone is muted and your camera is off. Thank you. All righty. Just uh, a couple of things this morning. Um, just as reminded everybody that we are now meeting in person and on Skype. Everyone here with me today knows that. But uh, if you've been wondering, that's the, that's the fact. If you've uh, been concerned about COVID, we understand. You can choose whether or not you wish to be with us in person or by Skype. So we'll leave that up to every individual. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, we sent uh, on behalf of the congregation a uh, remembrance basket uh, to Peter Morrison. And uh, this morning he sent us an email. And uh, he gave me permission to read it. And so guess what? I'm going to read it. It's wonderful. <laughs> to the to the LBC family, our family thanks all of the Lighthouse Bible Church family for the basket you sent, sent in remembrance of my beloved Ruth. There are so many words that can express how well Ruth managed her life while dealing with the three types of cancer she had. But the most prominent word was Jesus. Ruth knew from long ago, before I met her, that she had a savior named Jesus. From her childhood, Ruth's mother, Ethel, father, Charles, her four brothers, Roland, Richard, Robert, and Roy, and Ruth herself read verses from the Bible every evening. Ruth was always ready to help someone who needed Jesus. I am not sad. With Ruth's love of Jesus, I know she is very happy now, and she is waiting for me to join her. May Jesus bless every one of you. Alrighty, let's begin the message now. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter, no, John chapter 7, sorry, John 7, 53. John 7, 53 is where we'll begin. John 7, 53. Still? Okay. Again, um, we we still have somebody with uh, your camera on, and what's happening is it's preventing our slides from being shown. So please, please, please turn your camera off at this time so that we can have everybody seeing the slides. We have our monitor here. We can see whether or not. See, once I get started, I can't see what's on Skype because I'm in my slide presentation. So, still on. Camera's still on? Can you tell who it is? It's a guest user? All right. Uh, you can get them off. I can't. I can get the microphone off. I can mute the microphone, but I can't get the, uh, the camera off. So, I think, I think it's a guest user. If you could please turn your camera off. Yeah. Okay. It's, hey, the, um, it's June Murphy. Oh, it's June. Yeah. Okay. Hey, June. 
there's a little button that looks like a camera. If you could please click that, and therefore it'll be off, and then we will be on. We will be off the races. I'll call her. All right, thanks. All right, well, I'm going to start anyway. Um, you have to take my word for it, folks on Skype. That we are our passage. We start. We're in John chapter seven. We're going to start in verse 53, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 8, verse 11 this morning. And the title of today's message is, I do not condemn you either. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to that woman who was caught in adultery. And uh, that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Again, we're in John chapter 7, verse 53. It's the last verse of chapter 7. We're mostly going to be in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 today. So let's let's get started. I will read the passage and then we will get started with the the message that's associated with it. John 7, 53. And everyone went to his home. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. This is a beautiful story in the passage, this passage that we're in this morning. It's uh, one of my favorite passages um, because of what it says and what it shows about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It displays the tender mercies of our Lord. It's a, it's 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 um, looking also into the hearts of men, and He's able to judge their thoughts and intentions and motives. And not only that, but He has the authority to forgive sins, an authority that is reserved for God alone. All of this is found in our one remarkable passage this morning. One remarkable episode. During the ministry of Jesus. What's that? Okay. How about now? Okay, well, a few folks on Skype. Now you can see why I always emphasize at the beginning not to keep to turn your camera off and your microphone off. It really does matter. All right, so this passage in the Gospel of John, um, if you notice, unless you have a King James Bible, all right, you're going to notice something about this passage that's different. And I've got a picture of it on the slides this morning. I know it's kind of small, but... Basically, if you see, this is a uh, top of this is chapter seven, verse 53. And we just read that they went each to his own house. But it's it's you can see that this passage, this whole passage from 753 all the way to 811 
is in brackets. In fact, here in this translation, it's in double brackets. Sometimes it's single brackets. Sometimes it's parentheses. One, one statement, and this is an example of it, um, says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 753 to 811. This is pretty unsettling because now we wonder, you know, is this really part of the Bible? It's on this, this markings that, that are put here, um, bring uncertainty to that, that question. So we need to ask what, what is going on here? I'll say at the outset that this particular statement at the top is true, right? It is true that the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. But the earliest manuscripts aren't the only manuscripts that we have. We have thousands of them. And um, the fact of the matter is that most of them do. The earliest don't. And this has been a debate uh, in modern scholarship about the Bible, which which Bible manuscripts are better? Quote. Well, that's a value judgment that I guess anybody can see it either way. But but uh, I'm going to show you today where I fall on this. Okay, um, the King James Bible. There's no parentheses. There's no brackets. It's just here. This is the passage from the Word, word of God. But um, so this is an unwelcome complication. But we do need to address this before we can continue because a lot of people have that question. And why is this in my Bible this way? So I'm going to, I'm going to answer this this morning, but in, in, with the idea of drawing a conclusion that will then allow us to move on without worrying about this anymore. So now I, there are essentially three questions that need to be answered. First one is, was this passage in the original Greek text of the Gospel of John? Was this package in the this passage in the original Greek text of the Gospel of John? That's the first question. That's the question that's debated because of the different texts. Now, the text, I'll, I'll tell you this, that the text can be broken out into three types. All right. Um, there's what's called the Byzantine or the Eastern. There's what's called the Alexandrian and the Western. Now, again, there the, the different text types. Some of them have the passage in, some of them don't. So the, this question really can't be answered with certainty. Was this passage in the original Greek text of the Gospel of John? But the fact that this can't be answered with certainty does not mean that this passage isn't in the Bible. And that's the second question. Regardless of whether it's in the Greek text for this particular place in the Gospel of John, does it belong in the Bible at all? Is it biblical, even if perhaps we don't know exactly where it belongs in the Gospel of John? That's the second question. And the third and perhaps most important one is, did this event actually occur? Did what is said about Jesus in this passage today, did it actually happen? Did he speak these words? And you see, for ours, our sake is if, if this is inspired by the Holy Spirit and, he, and this event actually occurred and Jesus said what he said and the things happened the way they did, then that's enough. That's enough for us to say this is scriptural. And we're going to we're going to go forward and, 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 and receive it that way. Well, how do we answer these questions? So here's what you have. You have evidence. You know, that's the realm in which scholars work. You know, there's this many texts over here and this many manuscripts over there. And we're going to think about it and figure it out. We're smart and we're going to figure it out. Well, that's not the way you approach the Bible. Right? That's the way scholars do. But 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 pastors should not you, we look at that information, but ultimately we uh, allow all that evidence to be spiritually appraised. And that means the guidance of the Holy Spirit brings together the evidence such that we can conclude what we need to conclude in order to move on. And, and because of that, ultimately, the answers to this question are perceived by faith, not by rationality. I know that's unsettling, but but here's the thing. Everything in the Bible we accept by faith. Ultimately, sure, we can use our brains and we can ask questions, but ultimately we take everything in the word of God on faith, that this is what the Bible has to say and faith about what the message means and so forth. And that's how we have to take this. And that's how I approach this. Now, I want to give you the answers that I believe are all true. And then we'll move on. First of all, this event definitely occurred. It, without a doubt, occurred. It has all the markings of being authentic. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is the passage itself is reliable. In other words, it's scripture. This passage, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So again, the event actually occurred. And second, it's, it's reliable. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but not only does it belong in the Bible, it belongs in the gospel writings. This is a gospel passage. So, and by the way, at this point, this is all we need. The fact that it was definitely occurred, that's the most important. The fact that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's second. And the fact that it belongs in the Gospels, that's third. That, that is enough for us to just walk, step forward and say, we're gonna, we're gonna take this and, and, and see exactly what it has to say. Now, as far as the other questions, here's something that's also true. This particular passage has a lot in common with material in the Gospel of Luke. A lot in common with material in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and some of what is in there is, um, is, is unique. If it, if it is placed in the Gospel of John where it is, then there are some things about it that it's the only time that John would write the way he did. That's true. However, then the fifth thing is most of the manuscripts that include the passage have it right where we have it. So that's the state of the situation. I wish I could tell you that all these people are totally wrong in every factual extent, but that there are bases for the, for the question that people have. But again, it shouldn't be a problem because, number one, the event actually occurred. Number two, the passage is reliable. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number three, it belongs in the Gospels. And that's, that's really all we need to know. And again, I'm giving you these facts um, to complete the picture, it does have much in common with material. We'll see some of this this morning in the Gospel of Luke. And then finally, most of the manuscripts that include the passage place it right where it is here in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. All right. I hope I didn't confuse you or disturb you, but I wanted to make sure if I didn't address it, believe me, someone would come up and have their Bible and say, hey, wait a minute, this is in parentheses. This is in bracket. What's that all about? Or even even more so this my Bible says that this the earliest manuscripts don't even have this. Right. So you can't ignore it. But but I hope that, you know, that the points that I made give us give you confidence, because what ultimately matters is that the event happened as written and that the Holy Spirit inspired this text to be part of the Gospels. All right. So please turn to Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16. I'm, and I'm going to have Emmanuel read the passage. No, I wouldn't do such a thing. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16. This is what we're able to do with this passage. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16. I'll give you a moment to get there. Do we have the slides up yet? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This passage is scripture. It has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Okay, with that settled, now we will just dive into this passage and take all that it has for us and the richness of what's here and the application to our lives. And we're going to begin again, and we're going to, uh, in just a moment, we're going to start actually in chapter 8, verse 1. All right. In fact, we'll, we'll do that right now. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I'll give you, actually, I got to give you a chance to get back there. John chapter 8, verse 1. John 8, 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. This Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8 are strikingly similar to another passage that is found in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn now to Luke chapter 21, verse 37. 
Luke chapter 21, verse 37. Luke 21, verse 37. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. I want you to listen. I know you're in Luke and you can stay there, but I'm going to read again. John, we just read it in chapter eight, verses one to two. And you hope you'll see the similarities. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And in the morning, early in the morning, he sat, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. So what's in common? First of all, the Mount of Olives. Second of all, the teaching in the temple that Jesus gave started early in the morning. Not only that, but All kinds of people, all the people came to hear him come to the temple. So there's a lot in common. Um, But 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 the bottom line there is very simple, that Jesus often stayed on the Mount of Olives at night when he was teaching in Jerusalem. In other words, what Luke has to say validates what John has to say here. And it actually adds a lot of authenticity to the passage that we're reading this morning. Now, the main story in John chapter eight starts, though, in in verse three. And so now we're going to we're going to go back into the gospel of John chapter eight. And we're now going to pick up at verse three. Where the so-called what you could call the action of the story begins. There's a setting in the temple. It's early in the morning. Jesus is teaching the people. And then the action starts in verse three. John chapter eight, verse three. The scribes and the Pharisees. Go ahead. You can boo. (laughs) The scribes and the Pharisees are always troublemakers, right, along with the high priests. The scribes and the Pharisees, what did they do? They brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. I want you to think about this. Well, they didn't. they, They could have. Right. If they found her in adultery, they could have, you know, privately had a hearing and then made their conclusion. But instead, they they wanted to shame and embarrass her. I don't know if they wanted to, but they did. I mean, think about it. They said, we're going to bring that her right in the center of a big crowd. And we're going to accuse her there in front of everybody. And that's what they did. Again, verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, that's graphic. They didn't have to say that. Right. They could just say she was caught in adultery, but they went further in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say, Jesus? So who are these people? Who are these scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the scribes were scholars. Okay? It was a it was a job, as it were. All right. The Pharisees were a sect, really kind of almost a political political sect as we would think about it today like they might be the republicans you know and and the scribes were the theologians all right but the fact of the matter was it really didn't matter too much i mean the the politics and theology were joined at the hip you know they were a theocracy after all what did that mean it meant that they were at least they were supposed to be governed and ruled directly by the lord through his book okay so in that situation whether you're a bible scholar or a Pharisee, which is a different political sect, they're all working in the same picture, all right? And the, what really matters is both of them were zealous for the Lord. They weren't, they were, they were not um, ordinary people. They, they dedicated their life to the Lord. They were zealous for the things it had to say. They were misguided, by the way, by a lot of it, because they relied on the traditions of men rather than what the word of God had to say. And there was a lot of overlap. In other words, a lot of the Pharisees were scribes and and most of the scribes were Pharisees. All right. So I say that because the fact of the matter is, is that um, this here in John uh, chapter eight, this is the only place that John mentions these two together, the scribes and the Pharisees. Usually. 
He either talks about the Pharisees alone or he talks about the chief priests and the Pharisees. But you know what? When he says Pharisee, usually it's shorthand for the scribes and the Pharisees because they they were you know interlocked. Okay, so that's not a that's not a big problem either. Though some people try to make it something. It is true that the other three Gospels mention the scribes and Pharisees a lot. So that should have been a familiar. Those of us who have studied the Gospels have read the Gospels a lot. That phrase is very familiar, the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why, because in Matthew, um, Mark and Luke, they use that phrase much more frequently than John does. Okay. now let's think about the passage again. Here we have the scribes and the Pharisees. There was a woman they caught in adultery and they brought her and put her right in the center where all the people were, where Jesus was teaching. They interrupted uh, Jesus' teaching in order to bring this woman in. And then they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? But something really doesn't add up right here. And I hope it's obvious. I think, you know, those of us who understand what, what adultery is, understands that it requires two people. Anybody want to dispute that? <laughs> right? And the fact of the matter is, is that it's not true that the law Moses commanded us to stone such women only. We're going to see this. It wasn't only the, if you, if you listen to what they had to say, it almost as if the law said the women should be stoned, right? The law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Well, they commanded them to, to put to death the woman and the man. And by the way, by the time you get to the first century, because they were under Roman authority, they didn't do this. All right. For, for a number of reasons. Once they saw that they were they had sort of modified and um, and become a little bit more gracious at times and merciful. But more importantly, the Romans forbid them to put anybody to death. So that's all important to understand it as background here. All right. So, and again, the law required that both the man and the woman be put to death in such circumstances. I'd like you to see that. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. This is what the law actually said. And while you're turning there, I want to make a little commentary right here about what we have. First of all, they're twisting the scriptures. And and, and when that happens, usually they have people have an ulterior motive when they do that. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses twist the scriptures and they twist them a certain way. They consistently twist them so that it doesn't look like Jesus is God because their theology says Jesus isn't God. Right. Um, the 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 uh, the gay community twists scriptures having to do with homosexuality for their own self-interest. And I understand that. But they're still twisting the scriptures because if they have their own motivations to do so. So it's it's we can assume that it's no different here. Right. That they're actually doing what they what they're doing, not because they want to be faithful to the law of Moses, but they got another reason to do that. But let's look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If there's a, a man who commits adultery. Now, who does it who does it mention it first? The man. Isn't that interesting? That's not what they said. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife. And that's clearly what we have here, by the way. One who commits adultery with his friend's wife, or we don't know if it was his friend's wife. The adulterer, is that the man or the woman? Yeah, but why? Because the next next is the adulteress, right? The adulteress is the woman. The adulterer is the man. Who's mentioned first? The man or the woman? The man, right? And not only that, does it, it never even says that the woman commits adultery. Now, we know she does, but as far as the law is concerned, what does it have to say? Who's committing the adultery? The man. Can you see that? The man commits adultery. One who commits adultery with his friend's wife, he is putting the blame on the man, in other words. And yet the man's not there in the, in the, in the story we have before us this morning. Again, the law places the blame primarily on the man, not the woman. Now, the way, by the way, this makes perfect sense, you know. 
I mean, I mean, recently in our daily scriptures, we were in Ephesians chapter five, where we saw that the man is the leader, right? In relationships between men and women, the man is the leader. And it would be no different here. So it makes sense in the scriptural and God's way of viewing things that it's the man who bears most of the guilt when adultery has been committed. Okay. Sorry, men. Sorry, men's movement. But that's the fact, according to the Bible. So you have to ask the question. Simple question. Since this is true, since the law puts most of the blame on the man, why didn't they bring the man to Jesus? Why didn't they do it? Again, because they have an ulterior motive, right? Now, here's the thing. The the passage says they caught her and emphasized this in the very act. They didn't need to do that. That's more graphic than information any of us really needs. And even that itself causes you to wonder about these guys. You know, how did they were they able to do this? Why did they do it? Right. Um, There has to be more to the story that 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 they didn't share with Jesus. In any event, they they caught her in the very act. You know what that means? If they were in the very act, I don't want to get too graphic here myself, but they had the man dead to rights too. Right. If that's really what happened, now, it wasn't afterwards. They didn't see the woman leave. It's in the it's it's it, during the very act of adultery. The man was there. The man was compromised just like the woman. So they can't say, well, you know, we didn't see him and so forth. So here the scribes and the Pharisees clearly have some explaining to do. All right. Verse six. Now we're going to see the real motivation. They were saying this, testing him. So so they may have brought the woman in, but but who were they really putting on trial? Jesus. That was their motivation. They didn't need him to interpret the law. I mean, the law is really clear on this. That wasn't the reason at all they were bringing him. They were testing him. They were putting him on trial so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down. Very interesting, by the way. He stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. Again, they didn't need any guidance about the law from Jesus. They knew the law. But again, they were trying to trap him. This wasn't the only time they did that. There was another time when they tried to trap him on the issue of taxation. Right. They they wanted him to be able to get similarly. You're either going to have to go against the law of Moses here. If you say they should pay the taxes to, to to the Romans or you're going to go against Caesar. If you say they shouldn't. Now, that's a trap. Right. But, you know, there, too, it's the the uh, uncanny ability of Jesus to kind of get through and 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 have wisdom about it, you know, set them back to. Right. If you remember the story, he says, show me the coin that you want me to use to pay the tax. And they gave him the coin. He says, who whose image is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Oh, so. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I, I dare say, I don't know if any of us could come up with that, right? But he did. Wisdom, perhaps supernatural. It could, it could even be supernatural. And just like, by the way, if you know, if you, if you continue in the, and then he says, he tells his disciples, let's pay the tax. Then how did he do it? Anybody remember that? What did he tell them to do? Get, yeah, go fishing, fish, get a fish out of the water, open it up, and you'll find the coin to pay the taxes. Now, that's quite a statement. You know? Again, he's he's saying to the people, you know what, you know, you're, you're putting me on trial. Watch what I can do. See who I really am. Right. I'm, ultimately, you know what, you're going to be on trial someday. <laughs> you're going to be on trial for rejecting the Lord, you know, so when he came. In any event, they, they tried to trap him. So they could accuse him of flouting the law of Moses. See, that's that they tried to do this, by the way. They already had done this. I mean, if you think back in the Gospel of John, they already convinced he was a, a lawbreaker and they already thought they had plenty of evidence that he was a lawbreaker. Remember, he broke the Sabbath in their mind. He healed on the Sabbath. So they're like, well, there's a that's a big lawbreaker right there. And he even made himself equal with God. I mean, that's the first commandment. He broke that one, you know. So even at that point, they didn't really need any more evidence. But still, they were so desperate to put this guy on trial. And and as it were, as they saw that, as as you're going along, every time they tried to capture him, they couldn't. 
And then, and then there was this whole group of common people who were believing in him and being more and more excited. So they got desperate. Man, we got to get more evidence against this guy. And that's what they were trying to do. Not only that, but there's something else here that we can't ignore. Now, remember, these are Pharisees and scribes. They were pretty moralistic, legalistic people. Okay, And so now you have the situation where here's a woman who was caught in adultery. They're bringing him to Jesus. And part of the reason they they knew, and this would be a quandary for him, was that they knew how he'd already treated women caught in adultery, right? Ta- tax collectors and, and uh, sinners. In other words, he was already showing mercy to them. So they thought this would be a great way to trap them, okay? And, and, as, and, and in fact, the fact that he was this way, that he would hang around, with sinners and tax collectors, that he would go to a banquet that a tax collector had put on, that that when he taught uh, all of these people, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, they would all gather around and listen to him. And as a matter of fact, he actually preferred the sinners to the Pharisees. That must have driven them crazy. And it did. We have evidence of that. After all, why, why wouldn't he? I mean, the Pharisees, they wouldn't listen to anything he had to say. All they wanted to do was judge him and the people around him. But, but the sinners and the tax collectors listened and, and they let their lives be changed by the words that he had to say. So of course he would prefer them to the Pharisees. And, and he did. But this is, this is another thing. In addition to the fact that he was popular, in addition to the fact that in their eyes he had broken the law, here we have the people he hangs around with. They can't stand them either. Look at a couple examples of how Jesus hung around with sinners and tax collectors. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 29. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. We're going to see a man by the name of Levi. Levi also goes by the name of Matthew. This is actually one of the apostles. And, and, and he was uh, ultimately, obviously, too, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. But before he became an apostle, he was one of the big tax collectors that ripped off the Jewish people more than many other tax collectors. Okay, so he was a bad dude, so to speak. Let's look at now. Then, of course, Jesus comes along and accepts him and that changes his heart. And now he believes in Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. I mean, in a way, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. And in Providence, Rhode Island, it was uh, at one point in time, it was a mafia town. In fact, matter of fact, the kingpin of the New England mob lived in Providence, Rhode Island. So sometimes I picture what would happen if I had, had witnessed the gospel to this leader of the mafia, and then he invited me to his house for a big party with all the other mobsters, right? Hmm. That's a bit of, uh, but Jesus didn't blink, right? He said, I'm going to this party. I'm so, I'm excited this person believed in me. Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd. I love it. A great crowd. You couldn't miss it. It wasn't just a couple. It was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, who comes on the scene? Our, yeah, our, quote, friends, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're here again. They followed him around. They were always looking for a way to convict him, a way to put him down, a way to convince the crowds not to follow him anymore. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? Now, they talked to the disciples, but look who answers Jesus answered. Now, now, in part of that, you think about it, why didn't they go to Jesus, right? If they had a complaint, why didn't they go to the top guy? They didn't, why? Because they were cowards. <laughs> they would much rather pick on the less important people, right? Less powerful people. Jesus answered them in any event and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Go forward in the Gospel of Luke, please, to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 1 and verse 2. Luke chapter 15. 
I'm going to start. We're going to read the first two verses of chapter 15. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Again, it's the tax collectors and the sinners who listened to him. Why? Because he came to call the ones who were sick, not the ones who were healthy. And they knew it. And they knew he had a message of grace and forgiveness. And that's what they that's what they needed. And they recognized they needed it. You know, big sinners, quote, can't hide the fact that they sin. Most of us try to hide it. Right. If we're honest with ourselves. Right. But if you if you've been caught um, multiple times. Right. Committing sins that are illegal and you're arrested, then most people know what you did. Right. It was no different with these people. So they were very aware and they were sinners. And in the in the real religious framework of that time, they were pretty sure that they weren't going to get into the kingdom. Right. So when somebody comes and says to them, you don't understand, I'm from God, I'm God's son, I'm the Messiah, and I'm telling you that I've come for you in particular, right? That's time to rejoice, you know? Wait, this is the king himself telling me this. This isn't some scribe or Pharisee. This is the king has come and he said, I want you to come with me in the kingdom. Well, right, they, they would definitely listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We're not going to read it now, but this is the introduction to three parables that Jesus teaches right after this. Okay, The third one is the parable of the prodigal father. Notice I said the prodigal father rather than the son, because it's really about the father, you know, even though there's two sons involved, talking about how merciful and forgiving God is. In any event, here they are, back to back to John. Chapter 8, you can turn there too if you'd like to. Go back to John chapter 8, verse 6 again. They'd already seen him being so merciful, not being too proud to spend time with the sinners and the tax collectors. They were offended by that. They were very self-righteous, religious, legalistic people who turned their nose up, you know, and say, I can't believe he's, he's associating himself. With these sinners, you can hear him saying it, right? Look at look at chapter look at John chapter eight verse six. Okay, we're going to get here in a minute. They said this woman has been caught in adultery. In the back of their mind, they're saying, "We know that you're merciful to these people, but now we're going to tell you what the law has to say, and you're going to have to pick." They tried to put him in a vice. What was the vice? Either he had to treat this woman harshly which clearly he was not in the habit of doing, quite the opposite. Or he had to ignore what the law clearly stated, according to the scribes and Pharisees. So they thought they trapped him. They thought they had him in a vice. So what does Jesus do? Does he try to argue his way out of it? No, look what he does. This is so fascinating. Look at John chapter 8, verse 6b, the second half. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. That was an unusual way to handle this. He didn't didn't answer the question at all. He just probably turned their back to them, started stooped down to the ground, started writing on it. They must have been amazed or offended even more at the fact that he would do that. Now, a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out what he was writing. Here's the answer. You ready? We don't know. (laughs) If we needed to know, it would have been told us in this passage. All right. So don't listen to any of those people who think they know. We don't know. Okay. We don't need to know. Look at verse seven. But they persisted in asking him. And he straightened up and he said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, did he answer the question? I mean, they asked him, you know, Moses says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Did he give his ruling on that matter? No, he didn't. What did he say? He says, listen, I'm looking at you now. If there's anybody here who's without sin, you can be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And, you know, it was in the law. It was the witnesses of the crime that had the, quote, pleasure of throwing the first stone. But instead of answering his their question, he starts writing on the ground. I mean, I mean, imagine if you're in court, right? And uh, the prosecution has just finished their case against you. All right. And then you look and you, you're trying to read what the judge is saying. And he's he's stooped on the ground underneath his desk and he's like scribbling on the ground. But that would be a very unusual thing to see. And you, you'd have to wonder, you know, how seriously did he just take us? That that's the way he would be acting at the end. And again, we don't know what he wrote. By the way, we don't know if, if these folks even read what he wrote. It's not said that they even saw or read it. Okay? But one thing we do know for sure. He completely ignored them. Do you know something about arrogance? Arrogance hates to be ignored. They, they want a reaction one way or the other. They hate to be ignored. And he knew that. And so he basically ignored them. Not only them, but he ignored their question. You know, I, don't don't bother asking me. Well, they did bother asking him. They asked him again, and then he did speak this time. But it was definitely not what they had hoped to hear. They had hoped to trap him. They had hoped that he would go on one side or the other. Yes, you need to stone her. No, you shouldn't stone her. Ah, we got you either way. What they didn't expect was what he actually said, which is, whoever out there is without sin, you can be the first one to throw a stone at her. That was disappointing. That is not what they had hoped to hear from him. And then, so again, he straightened up and he said to them, he was without sin among you. Let them be the first to throw a stone in her. Now, they thought that this woman was on trial. More importantly, they thought that Jesus was on trial. But really, <laughs> he's going to put them on trial. Right. He turned the tables around completely. Now, the spotlight's not on the woman in the center of the court. The spotlight's not on Jesus. The spotlight's on them. And that's where it really belonged. I mean, think about it. What were they doing? How dare they judge and condemn this woman with no mercy, by the way, while they're at the same time ignoring their own sin? Okay. Now, here's the thing. We don't know, but we can surmise that there may have been some uh, untoward aspects of them even being on the scene that day. All right. Why were they even there? Think about it. Why were they? Why were so many of them there? There's a whole crowd of scribes and Pharisees. You got to ask the question. Was there some funny business going on? Did they set her up? Did they trap her? Did they did they sit around and watch? I mean, we don't know, but it's certainly they don't seem to be very innocent in the matter. First of all, that 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 day, that matter. But even beyond that, you know, they they the, 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 the book of Romans says that you condemn people while doing the same things yourself. You know, mark it down. People who are very vehement against the sin very often are committing it themselves. Very often they want to turn attention away from what they've been doing and put it on somebody who they think is a little worse. OK, kind of hides what they're doing. We don't know exactly what the sin was or sins were, but we know for sure that they were guilty of the same or worse themselves. This was not at all the message that they should have been listening to. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. And this principle that we're about to read, that Jesus spoke, it wasn't as if it was, it was totally foreign to them. I mean, if there's one thing you can say about the Lord in the Old Testament, in his dealings with Israel, is that he was merciful. He, the Lord is merciful and gracious and forgiving. Okay, that's not just the New Testament thing. That's a whole Bible thing. You know, Abraham was not perfect. Abraham had a lot of failures, failures, but the Lord kept his promises to Abraham. We're studying in the book of Isaiah right now on Thursday evenings how at the, when the times in which Isaiah wrote, they were very wicked times. The, the, the kings of Judah, the people themselves, there was lots of 
um, paganism and, and idolatry. And he, and he tells them, he says, listen, I will forgive your sins for my own sake, for my name. He was always merciful. OK, even when he had to discipline his people. Right. He was still he was still doing it for their benefit. I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's true. And he, does, he does the same thing for us. You know, right. The Hebrew says that every son he disciplines for their own benefit. So they knew that their God was merciful. Look at John chapter Luke chapter six, sorry, verse 36. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Now, look at verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. They judged. So what does that mean? They will be judged, right? And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. The blessings will pour into your lap in good measure. pressed down, shaken together and running over. That's, by the way, those who don't judge, those who don't condemn, those who pardon. All right. They'll be the ones whose blessings will pour into their lap in good measure. By the way, this is not salvation. Right. This is blessing. All right. And then but then he makes the key statement. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. If you're harsh with people, if you if you judge them for the smallest thing that they do wrong. Well, guess what? Right. In your life, then that's, that's going to happen in your life, too. You will be judged in the same way. Um, and that's just a principle. All right. A, a, a biblical principle. All right. Let's go back to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. and We'll look at verse seven. So they ask him to, should we, what should we do? Should we stone this woman? The law says we should. He stoops down and he writes on the ground, totally ignores him. They persisted in asking him, so he gets up. And then he does speak. He says, he was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And oh, by the way, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Don't judge because then you will be judged. Don't condemn because then you will be condemned. So what happens next? He's done. He's gotten up. He's spoken. What does he do? Again, he stoops down and writes on the ground. <laughs> you know, he's saying basically, all right, listen, you're asking for a response. Here you go. All right, leave me alone. I'm going to go back down, ignore you guys, and I'm just going to write on the ground a little more. But this time he was, it was a little different because he had spoken. And this time when he stooped down and wrote on the ground again, he was actually giving them some time, some time, time to reconsider. He had just made the case that, you know what, you shouldn't be judging others when you're committing worse sins yourself. Maybe you should think about that. So he, so while he was scribbling on the ground again, it gave him time just to reconsider what they had been doing and maybe change their hearts. Maybe they would finally take something to heart that Jesus said. And it worked. It worked. Look at verse nine, John eight, nine. And when they heard it, what happened? They ignored it and asked him a third time to make a ruling. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says they began to go out one by one. Kind of amazing. I mean, think about it. They came in storming, knowing they were right, trying to trap Jesus. They leave like little mice one by one. They go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Hmm. And he was left alone. And the woman was left alone where she was in the center of the court. Now, I find it very interesting that not only did they all leave, but who left first? The older ones. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. But, the, but I think the most important one was that they were the most ashamed of themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that they were worse people overall, but I want you to think about it. If they're older, all that means is they had more time to have sinned. <laughs> right? They had they had built up a larger portfolio, okay? 
So of all people, they should have they should have understood what he was saying and finally did a little introspection and say, oh, yeah, you know, not to mention the fact that probably the the guys, so to speak, kind of knew a lot of the sins that other guys had committed. All right. So you got to you got to be, you know, practical, and have a little wisdom here. They're the ones not only that, but they're the leaders of the mob. Right. So if the mob's been put in their place, then the leaders realize, you know what, I, I got to set a good example and get out of here first. And they did. So it was now just Jesus and the woman. She was still in the center. But that whole circle of condemnation around her had completely evaporated. Verse 10, John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. One more time, he straightens up. Now he just talks to the woman. Women, women rather, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. What is that? Finally answering the question. But were any of the self-righteous men there to hear it? No, he wasn't going to answer the question to them. He was only going to answer the question to the woman. And his answer, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. But first, he gets up and he says, woman, where are they? Now, it's, a, it's as if he had paid no attention to the men, even when they were leaving. But really, he asked the question, really, so that she would realize, you know what? I am no longer under the penalty of death. He has freed me, right? But he goes farther than that. Now, make it clear that he didn't deny that she committed adultery. Not at all, all right? And he wasn't overlooking it and winking at it, winking at her. It's okay, you know. We know that because what he says at the end, right? From now on, sin no more, all right? But first, he chose to be merciful to her which none of the other men around here had done. It reminds me very much of the woman that when he was at the, at the Pharisee had actually spoke, sponsored a meal. Very different situation because they, they were not respectful to the Lord at all. And this woman comes in and, and she you know, washes her, his feet with her tears and anoints him. And he says, this is the one who did all the things that you, Pharisee, didn't do in the area of hospitality. And he said, she's loved, tells a story, but at the end of it, the point was she loves much. She's forgiven much. Well, she, there she was a flagrant sinner. There's no doubt it says so. Um, so. So this is a similar thing of mercy being shown and he had forgiven her of her sins. I do not condemn you. He chose to be merciful and he had forgiven her of her sins. And by the way, Forgiving sins is something that who can do only? God, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We can forgive one another for things we do. But the word sins means an offense against God. Only God can forgive sins. Okay. So if only God has the authority to commit sins and Jesus forgives her of her sins, what does that say about Jesus? He's God, right? And I want to just go to one more passage in Luke this morning. We're going to find our friends, the scribes and the Pharisees, once again. John, I mean, Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. This is the story of a paralytic who wanted to see Jesus. But there's a tremendous crowd in and around the home where Jesus was. And so they actually got a ladder, went to the top, made a hole in the roof and dropped their friend down gently. Okay, so that he was in the center again of the, of the crowd. Verse 20. Seeing their faith of his, of their friend, of his friends, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a great question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is nobody. So either either Jesus is a fraud or he's God, right? I mean, there's only two choices here, right? Well, 
Jesus, aware of their reasoning, which I love because he could read their minds, <laughs> answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, after all, to say, right? not to perform, but to say. What's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven you, right? In other words, if you're a fraud, you're not going to be able to, you know, have anybody healed, but you can certainly say, hey, your sins are forgiven you, you know? Catholic priests say that all the time, right? That you go in a little box, you tell them your sins, and he says, I have the authority to forgive your sins. They got no such authority to do so, but they can say it, right? Which is easier to do, to say? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, him, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Power, divine power. God in their presence in the flesh. Immediately, the paralytic got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. The last words that Jesus spoke to the woman were what? Go, from now on, sin no more. When Jesus healed the paralytic, he got up, picked up his his uh, what he had been lying on, and he went home. And because of the miracle, not only of, of healing him, but of forgiving his sins, he glorifies God. The last words that Jesus speaks to the woman, go, from now on, sin no more. Now, he's not asking for sinless perfection from the woman. I mean, if he if that was what he really said, well, then, you know, he knew that she couldn't do that. So you, so you wonder, what do you mean? By the way, you know, people say, oh, you know, he meant sinless perfection. How can he possibly say that? Here's my question. What else do you want him to say? I mean, think about it. This is Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. Would you like him to say, you know, you can go and sin a little, not too much? No. Right. He's going to say sin no more. Right. Not because he knows that she's never going to commit any sins, but for another reason. See, on the one hand, he's saying, don't ever commit adultery again. Something worse might happen to you next time. In particular, I might not be here to bail you out. But that's the negative side of things. Here's the positive. He hopes that she will be like the paralytic. That very simply, she'll be full of gratitude for having her sins forgiven and, and, and been freed up from the death sentence of death and love. And again, just like the paralytic that he healed, his hope is she will glorify God and always desire to obey God. See, so often it's the desire, it's the heart that the Lord is looking for with people. He knows what we, that we, we cannot but sin no more. We're going to sin. But but in our hearts, those can be changed and be glorifying God. And because of that, the gratitude that we have for what he's done for us, desire, want to obey him. And, and so that's really the response he's throwing out when he says, go and sin no more. In your heart, glorify God and always desire to obey him. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are merciful as Jesus teaches. We thank you that you're so merciful and gracious and you love us so much that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, just like the woman, just like the paralytic, that you made us alive. You made us alive, having forgiven all our sins. We thank you, Father, that is simply believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior just like the paralytic believed in Jesus Christ as his deliverer, just like the woman caught in adultery believed in your son as her savior. So anybody who hears the gospel message and believes it is, is restored, is completely healed, is given eternal life and declared righteous by you. We thank you, Father, that you are merciful and gracious and loving and kind. Father, we also ask that the Holy Spirit, 
would give us the ability, the motivation, opportunity to tell unbelievers just how merciful and gracious you are by telling them the facts of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead by you, Father, on the third day, that whoever believes this will never perish but have eternal life. And as we leave today, Father, we also pray that in our hearts that we would find it easier and easier to forgive our brothers and sisters because we know how much you have forgiven us. And we just want to praise you for giving us the example for setting the lead and how to love one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I always do, I want to remind us all that we're going to have Bible study on Thursday. I hope you can see that um, in, the, in the recent messages in John that I've been referring a lot to Isaiah, they're, there's a, they're very complementary to one another. And so it's, uh, it's no accident, I suppose, that the Lord has had us studying Isaiah and John at the same time. But what that means is that is that really, I say this so often, but the Thursday evening Bible studies are just as part, much a part of the teaching ministry of this church as any as Sunday. All right. I know it's during the week. I know it's a little more difficult. But by the way, if you're not able to join us, um, always there will always be on the website a teaching summary. So really, there's no excuse for you to be staying up to date in some way, either by joining us on Skype or by checking out the teaching summary. Okay, so please try to do that. It's It's an important part of the teaching ministry. All right, let's close again in prayer briefly. Father, we want to just again thank you. We want to thank you for all your blessings. We want to also thank you for your word that's living and active and discerning. We thank you, Father, that you love us the way you do and that you've given us the Holy Spirit as our guide and our teacher for your word. Asking this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. That's all, folks. Have a good afternoon. No, it's not. <laughs> I, I, I'm refraining from saying something, right? Because, you know, it's Sunday, the microphone's still on. Right. I knew I was doing that.